you want to turn there in your Bible, Second Chronicles, uh, at verse tw- uh, chapter twenty-nine. We're gonna, I'm going to read some selected verses throughout uh, three chapters. The story of Hezekiah, Second uh, Chronicles twenty-nine through thirty-one. So, if you want to turn there, uh, you can you can find yourself there uh, in, uh, quickly. We've been preaching through uh, the book of Acts together uh, here in the morning service, and uh, we finished up last Sunday with the story of uh, the gospel coming to the region of Samaria, and we read about uh, Philip bringing the good news uh, there. And uh, a lot of you have been asking me questions about uh, revival and about this revival uh, at Asbury University. Uh, What do we believe about revival? Is it real? Uh, If it is, how does it come? Uh, what, are, what, what, are, what, are, what, what do we say about, uh, about these things as Reformed people? So I thought it would be good for us to pause. Uh, it was a good pausing point anyway. And we'll come to the story of uh, the conversion of Saul, Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, next Sunday, Lord willing. But uh, I want to take up this question this morning of uh, what is uh, revival. And so let's turn together in our Bibles. Again, as I mentioned, Second Chronicles chapter 29 uh, and I'm going to read some selected verses throughout uh, 29, 30, and 31. So if you want to follow along, the verses are printed out there uh, on that sermon notes page. It'll help you uh, quickly just reference where I'm at. But if you want to have your Bible open as well, that'd be great. So 29, uh, beginning at verse 1, Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors to the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them. Then skipping down to verse 5, and said to them, hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the, the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place of the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem And he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. And verse 10, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Skipping to verse 20, then Hezekiah, the king, rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord, that means the temple And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. Verse 24, and the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. And then at verse 25, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. Verse 26, the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also, and the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David. 
at verse 28. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. Verse 29. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. And then verse 35 summarizes, Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people. For the thing came about suddenly. And then in chapter 30 at verse 1, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and keep the, to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in verse 5, so they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, that's all the way on the south, to Dan, all the way to the north, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. Verse 6, here's what the letter said. O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to a sanctuary which he's consecrated forever to serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And then in chapter 31, Verse 1, now, all, uh, now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and broke down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and in Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. And then finally at verse 20 and 21, thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. And to all these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, you may or may not have heard about uh, uh, the idea of revival, but uh, in particular, you may have even seen it in the news uh, even uh, the news now, uh, in print as well as uh, watching on television or listening on the radio, uh, is, are, are asking questions of uh, what this evangelical revival uh, is all about uh, at Asbury University uh, in Kentucky. So, so much, so, somewhat of a buzz about it in Christian, the Christian world as well as in our, uh, in our national uh, political uh, religious conversation. And many of you, have, as I mentioned, have asked me, well, what is revival, Pastor? Uh, what do you think about this? Is it real? Uh, is there such thing as revival? The Reformed churches, the Frozen Chosen, believe in revival. Uh, how do we make sense of what goes on in churches that many of us have left, right? I mean, we, many of us, I mean, I spent many a time in a tent uh, in college uh, during a revival, uh, that's using revival as a noun, right? Uh, as a noun. Uh, but it's not an event. So it's not really a, a... It's not... We shouldn't think of it as a noun. 
Uh, it's an action. It's a, a work uh, of God. And we'll come to that here in just a bit. Uh, but what about uh, revivals and how we are to make sense of them? So just to make the, the, the most simplest observation, and, and I'm not going to tell you what I think about what goes on in particular revivals. It's not my job to say if it's real or not. Only God knows. Uh, and uh, it was Gamaliel in Acts we saw in chapter 5 when the church was being persecuted. He told the, the Pharisees, the strictest party of the Jews, uh, if it's of God, well, you can't afford it. And if, if it's not, well, it'll come to an end anyway. So uh, it's not for us to decide, you know, this one is good and that one is bad and uh, this one's great because, you know, we maybe are involved in it, and that one's bad because, you know, the wrong actors uh, are playing a part in it. It's for us to think, though, about what the Bible says. And so just a brief definition, uh, as, I, as I, want, I want us to think clearly about this idea uh, of revival, and I'm probably already playing my cards, my hands, uh, uh, too, too, too openly that uh, it's a real thing. Revivals are real. Um, but revival, of course, very simply, just it has two words. There's a prefix, and there's, a, and there's the, the suffix there. Uh, re just means again. Uh, that, that little prefix, again, re. Uh, well, again what? Again what? Well, the Latin re and then the, the Latin vivus or vivus uh, speaks of uh, being alive or, being, uh, or, or having life, uh, living, a living thing. And so revival is just to give new life, uh, is to give life again. In our passage here, this story of Hezekiah, it's one of the most famous passages uh, in the Bible about this idea of what some call reformation, uh, restoration, renewal, or revival. So people use those various terms to describe it. And so we want to think about it and uh, evaluate it, this idea of revival, uh, giving of new life from God, uh, by evaluating it from our passage here in Hezekiah. Uh, and it's always easy to do the, 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 the sort of uh, elementary or middle school thing, the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, uh, and I'll come to the how at the end, which will be kind of a little more practical points for us. But I want to think about revival then, the who of revival. So when we think about revival, when people talk about revival, uh, a lot of times, we th- again, we think of it as a noun, you know, it has come. You know, revival is here. And it's not spoken of in terms of God's. The who of revival is God. God is the one who gives. As we sang, he alone can create and he alone can destroy. He's God. And so this story here of Hezekiah, if you read before the story, and you probably haven't read the Chronicles in quite a while, but the story just before it is the story of King Ahaz, one of the worst of the ancient kings, and you go from, he- from Ahaz to Hezekiah, and humanly speaking, there, there should be no expectation, as you're reading the story of the, ki- of the kings here, there should be no expectation there's going to be a difference between this king and that king. This guy did what was evil, Hezekiah, uh, 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 Ahaz, he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, uh, he slept with his fathers and so forth, and his son Hezekiah reigned in his place, the last verse of chapter 28 tells us. And so there's really no difference between one king and the next, humanly speaking. We shouldn't expect anything to happen differently with Hezekiah. We should see him also setting up high places, worshiping idols, uh, doing all kinds of things that God has forbidden. In fact, we read in our story in chapter 28, it's because of what Ahaz had done Uh, Verse 8 tells us that the wrath of the Lord has come upon Judah and Jerusalem. And we would expect that that, that that's going to continue 
humanly speaking, in our story. But, verse 10, something about Hezekiah is different. Something is stirring within him. It is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord. Why? Why did the son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, why did he want to make a covenant with God while Ahaz wanted to break the covenant with God? There's something different, you see. Humanly speaking, there shouldn't be. The apple shouldn't fall very far from the tree. But there's something stirring in the heart of Hezekiah. And we read about that, verse 15, that the priest did what the king commanded, quote, by the words of the Lord. There's something stirring in the heart, in the mind of this young king, Hezekiah, and that is the word of the Lord. And we'll We'll see that throughout here. Chapter 30, verse 12, we read about the hand of God was also on Judah to do what the king commanded by the word of the Lord. Notice that again. And then back in chapter 29, verse 36, there's this little summary. It says, for the thing came about suddenly. From the human vantage point, this just happened. Hezekiah didn't do anything to drum it up. He didn't put a a banner outside saying revival uh, October 1st through October 7th. They didn't bring in any particular kinds of speakers or revivalists as it's so often today. Some kind of an event that's outside and it draws people's attention so that we can then bring them in and so forth. Notice. The thing came about suddenly. And that helps us to think then, well, what's the difference between the days of Ahaz and the days of Hezekiah in terms of the who of revival? Something was going on. God was doing something. And that's why revival is the work of God alone. It comes from God. God gives it at his pleasure, according to his will, when, where, how he wants to, according to his power and his grace. Again, humanly speaking, there should be nothing different between Ahaz and Hezekiah, the father and the son. One man did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. One man does what was right. What's the difference? God. God. You can't manipulate God. There's no magic mantras that we can recite here this morning to bring revival. There's no sure formula that if we would just follow this path and these particular steps, and I'll give you some application at the end, but I, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's going to be steps. There's no real steps. There's no surefire way. And trust me, as a pastor, you get all the emails, you get all the spam emails, all the spam phone calls from all the Christian, uh, all, all the Christian industries out there because they're going to bring revival to your church, pastor. They're going to bring revival to your church if you would just follow these steps. We got a plan. We got a speaker lined up. Uh, we got an event for you. We've done it before. We've got a, we've got a van with a sort of the, a prepackaged revival. It's just ready at the low, low price, of course, of $999.99. We take credit cards. We take check. Uh, we'll do payment plans too, Pastor, if you want. You can't manipulate God. God is not a fire that you can manipulate. We, we can make a fire in our backyard. Uh, we can. With our kids, we put sticks in there. Your kids probably have done it too. You, put, you, you roast marshmallows, you put sticks in there. Uh, the fire starts to burn the stick up and your kids play at the fire and we play fire swords in the backyard. 
Uh, I don't recommend that, uh, but, but we do it anyway. Uh, we can manipulate fire as human beings, but we cannot manipulate God. He is a living, consuming fire, and it's a fearful thing to fall into his hands. And so, when we think about revival then, the who of revival is God. God alone can bring revival, new life, to the hearts of his people. Well, then what is this revival that's going on here in the life of, in the, uh, along the, in the time of Hezekiah, amongst the people of God, the what of it. And I'll just mention it like this. So if the Hula revival is the work of God alone, because it comes from him, because he gives it according to his will, power, and grace, the what of revival is the extraordinary blessing of this God on his ordinarily prescribed means meaning word, sacraments, and prayer. You see, we think of it as evangelical Christians in 21st century America. We think of revival as an extraordinary thing. It's an add-on. It's an extra. It's something that we want to get to that sort of higher plateau, that next level step of spirituality. And it's different than what goes on on Sunday. And it's different than what goes on in the ordinary life that we live every single day. I mean, don't we talk about, uh, you know, those of you who went to Christian camps growing up? I didn't, but some of you did. Uh, the mountaintop experience. And then the, the camp ends. You drive down the mountain, and what happens? It all just kind of wears off, right? And you've got to get back to that mountaintop experience. You know, sorry, kids. You know, that was the, that was the winter camp. Uh, the revival happened. You got to wait until spring break to get the next revival. Spring break comes. You do the, the you get the camp, the mountain hop experience. You come back down. Things are going so great. I want to get it again. Sorry, you got to wait to summer camp. You know, we got a prepackaged plan for these mountain hop experiences, these, these extraordinary things that happen, as opposed to real revival according to the Bible. Is it is an extraordinary blessing of God, but upon and through the things that he's already commanded us to do as Christians. Read and preach the word, receive the sacraments, and pray. The extraordinary blessing of God upon his ordinary prescribed means. And you see that here in our story. The first thing we read about Hezekiah doing, the first year of his reign, in the first month, notice. What did he do in verse verse 3? 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3. What did he do? What's the verb there? He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Why? Because you read in chapter 28, Ahaz closed the doors. He stopped incense being burnt, which was to be burnt continually in the temple as a symbol of prayer. Morning and evening sacrifices every day. Animals were slain and sacrifice was offered every morning, every evening. That couldn't happen. The priests couldn't serve. People couldn't pray. They couldn't bring offerings and so forth to God. The temple was God's ordinarily prescribed means of people coming to receive the teaching of the priests and the Levites, the word, to receive sacraments, signs, visible signs of God's grace and mercy. That's what sacrifices were. And prayer. Those were closed, but in the days of Hezekiah, the doors were opened up. Why? The Lord picked that place. 
He told Moses there was going to be a place to come that he was going to choose and that that's where his temple was going to be set up. And so then Hezekiah calls the priests and the Levites to consecrate themselves. They had for generations been living in sin and they had not been consecrated to sacrifice until they had to go undergo a ritual process. He calls them to clean up the temple. See that again. He calls upon them to minister sacrifices and offerings. And they do that. Verse 12 and through verse 19 in chapter 29, they consecrate themselves. Uh, verse 20 through the end, the temple services were reinstituted. Notice, the normal, ordinary, mundane, daily temple services were reinstituted. And those are the things that God used to revive his people, not something extra. They offered sin offerings to remove their guilt. Burn offerings to consecrate them. Thank offerings that they could bring in response that they couldn't bring for generations because the temple was closed. And again, verse 32 through verse 35 says that the people responded to the temple being opened, the priests being consecrated, sacrifices being reinstituted. The people responded by bringing so many animals to sacrifice that they could not use them all. They responded. God was working in their hearts. He stirred Hezekiah. He changes the priests. He changes the hearts of the people. And they respond. Notice, with ordinary things. Because you would bring your sacrifice not only as as an offering for sin, but it was an offering of prayer to God. They were doing the things that God commanded. And God was blessing those things. Chapter 30 is all about the the Passover being reinstituted. They, uh, they had cleansed the land, verse 14 says, of idolatry. They, cel- they celebrated the Passover festival, which is a one-day thing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days to follow. Uh, that was normally seven days, but they were so, we might say, so revived, so moved by God at these normally prescribed services that they hadn't had before that they went another seven days. That's in chapter 30, verse 23 and following. That they decided to stay seven more days. So two whole weeks. Verse 26 of chapter 30 summarizes it, saying, For since the time of Solomon, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And in verse 27 of chapter 30, the priest then, it says to us, they blessed the people and they prayed. Well, what is that? That's from Numbers chapter 6. They blessed the people. They couldn't do that for generations. All the normal stuff is being done again. The temple's open. The priests are consecrated. They're sacrificing animals. They're celebrating the, the, the festivals. The priests are doing their job. The people are praying. Chapter 31, the removal of idolatry. We read that again, verse, verse 1 and following. Uh, and then there's the, the reestablishment of the priests. They're reordered back in their rightly uh, prescribed places. There's morning and evening sacrifices, verse number two describes. Uh, new moons and festivals are once again uh, reauthorized and reinstituted. Verses five through seven, again, the people are so touched, they're so moved that there are so many offerings made that it took four entire months of all the animals, all the harvest, all the stuff that people were bringing to the temple to feed the priests, to feed the poor that they had to build storehouses in the temple to put them all in there. It took four months to collect them all, to organize them all, to distribute them all. So what do you notice about all these things that Hezekiah is instituting? 
All these things, the temples, the priests, the sacrifices, the prayers, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath day, and so forth. What about all these things that they are doing? They're all things that God commanded. These are all the things that God required, that God prescribed. Notice in chapter 29, verse 15, I'm just going to read a couple of verses quickly. Uh, you can scan down if you'd like. Chapter 29 uh, at verse number 15. I'm just going to read some of these phrases. Uh, that they, they did what the king had commanded by the words of the Lord. Notice that. Highlight that. Verse 25 again. Notice we'll see this again. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. Chapter 30 at verse 5. Uh, that they, they did not, they were not keeping Passover as often as prescribed, but now they were, right? How God had prescribed. Verse 12, again, of chapter 30. We read about uh, the hand of God being on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Chapter 31, verse 3. As it is written in the law of the Lord. And again, verse 4. That they might give themselves to the law of of the Lord. And finally, verse 21, in accordance with the law and the commandments. Commandment, sorry. So the what of revival. God's extraordinary blessing upon his ordinarily prescribed means. How do we know what to do as Christians? How do, we know where, how do we know what God has prescribed? His word. His word. You don't need to wait for some apostle or prophet to come through town, brothers and sisters. We have the word of God, and we are called to follow it. And God is going to bless those means regularly. But there might be times where in his sovereignty, that's the first point again, that he's the who of revival, in his power and grace, he might extraordinarily bless those means when, where, and how he desires. So the who, the what. This is why sometimes men like J.A. Packer and others describe revival as God showing up. God showing up, God visiting his people through those means, God extraordinarily blessing, and there's a greater sense of his presence amongst us when the word is read and proclaimed. We are baptized, we celebrate communion, and we pray because God uses the things that he's commanded. The when, thirdly, the when. Again, because revival is the work of God's will and God's power, it takes place when he desires. So the timing, the length of time, and all these things about time, they all happen according to God's timing. Then we might say the winter revival, also we could describe it as revival happens, God revives his people uh, in times of spiritual darkness and declension or decline. And we see that in the days of Ahaz, chapter 28. And then we shift over here to our passage this morning, chapter 29. Uh, notice there, verse 3 again, that it's the first year and it's the first month of Hezekiah's reign that he opens wide the doors of the temple and has it cleansed. 
So according to verse 17, on the eighth day of that first month of his first year of his reign, from day 8 to day 16, they are consecrating the temple. So it's been roughly two weeks into his reign, and they're spending their time preparing the priests. It took about a week. It took a week for their preparation. Uh, and they're also cleaning out the temple. Uh, they're taking out all the filth, whatever had been put there, the idolatry and so forth. They're cleansing it, purifying it for about two weeks. That's chapter, three, uh, uh, chapter 29, verse 3, uh, verse 17, all the way to the day 16. So roughly the first two weeks of his reign. When we get to chapter 30, uh, at verse 15, now we, we, we move forward about a month. It's the second month now, verse 15 tells us. And the 14th day of the month is the festival of the Passover. So it's been about 34 days since, his, uh, since he started this, uh, uh, this uh, cleansing of the temple and so forth. And notice the, on the 21st day, that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then all the way to the 28th day, verse 26, they continue that feast uh, together. So roughly we see here the, the time and place in which these things are happening. And again, in chapter 31 at verse number 7, now we shift forward. It's the third month, and uh, between that third and seventh month, they were receiving, as I mentioned, piling up, storing up all the offerings that the people of God had made. In the Old Testament, you brought offerings of animals and, and harvest, uh, wheat and fruit and all the produce that you, that you produce, you brought to the temple, uh, the, 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 the one-tenth of it, the tithe of it, uh, not just for sacrifices, and some sacrifices were all burned up because they're all eaten by God. Some were eaten by God, and some of them were, uh, the, some parts were eaten by the priests. Other sacrifices, God got apart, the priests got apart, and the people got apart. But you also brought offerings uh, out of thankfulness, free will, thank offerings. And these were so the priests had food, but also that the poor could come to the house of God and the priests could then distribute to them according to their needs. It took them four months. It took them four months to take care of all the offerings, to compile them, to organize them, to receive them, uh, to build storehouses for them, to distribute them to the people. In other words, all we are called to do as Christians, is to be faithful to the means that God has given to us in his word, in the sacraments, and in prayer. We are called to be faithful to those things that God has given to us and to let God bless us through them as he wishes. So normally you would just bring these things every day. People would be there every day. Every day there'd be a long line of people. They would bring offerings and sacrifices and free will offerings and thank offerings and vow offerings. And you can read about all that in Leviticus, all the offerings you would bring. And that was just normally happening. It just happened to be that there's a time of spiritual darkness and decline. So that when these things began to be reorganized and reinstituted, the people of God responded by using those ordinary means in a way that was extraordinary. And for four months, they experienced this blessing of bringing to God all they had. In other words, it's up to God, the timing. Again, you can't plan it, you can't manipulate it, you can't organize it, you can't uh, set it aside, we can't put it in our calendars. When God is going to do an extraordinary work of his grace. Only God knows that. In the meantime, we're just called to be faithful. The where of revival. So the who, it's God. 
The what, it's God's extraordinary blessing upon his ordinary means. The when, again, it's up to God, when he desires. The where, again, it's a place of spiritual darkness, decline. And we see something here very interesting. As I mentioned, the, the, the contrast between the, the reign of Ahaz and Hezekiah, we see here in this story in particular that it's not just in general there's a spiritual malaise and darkness and decline amongst the people of God, but God does all these things of reviving his people when at least one person rises up to follow the Lord. On the one hand, we might say Hezekiah was stirred up by God and it is a sovereign work of his grace. On the other hand, there is something about Hezekiah, no doubt, because we're reading here about he's doing things according to the law, according to the word of God. He even takes, uh, we read in chapter 30, that he took counsel, verse number uh, 2, he took counsel about the Passover. It hadn't been celebrated and he knew in his heart of hearts as a king that the Passover was to be celebrated, and he takes counsel from no doubt the Levites and scribes and, and, and uh, Old Testament uh, experts. When, when is the Passover to be celebrated? How, where, and so forth. So all of it is happening according to the word. So on the one hand, God stirs his heart. On the other hand, he stands up. He rises up. And he takes a stand for God. In the days of Ahaz, in chapter 28, there are idols, there are offerings, and because of that, they are defeated in battle. Uh, they're taken captive. They forsook the Lord. We read about that in verse 20, uh, uh, ver the first 21 verses of chapter 28, uh, verse 22 to the end. Ahaz, though, became even more faithless. He sacrificed to the God of, the, uh, of, of Damascus. He cuts up all the temple furnishings, uses the gold, for himself, and he closed the doors of the temple. Hezekiah sums up the where of all this decline and spiritual darkness in chapter 29, verse 6 and through 9 that we read, the wrath of the Lord uh, has come upon them. Verse 6, our fathers have been unfaithful uh, they turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord. They turned their backs on God. Chapter 30 at verse 7, uh, we read there again, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers. One writer said it like this, that the revivals of Christianity, speaking of in the New Testament, have occurred when the funeral of the faith has seemed near. The when of revival. The revivals of Christianity have occurred when the funeral of the faith has seemed near. And that's certainly the case here in the days of Hezekiah. Now they were called, Hezekiah calls upon the the people of Judah and Jerusalem, to turn from idolatry, to turn from these little high places, these hills, these mountaintop places where you would pray and offer to a God. He calls the, the, the Israelites, those of Judah, he calls them away from idolatry, false worship, sacrificing 
to false gods, forsaking God in those places. And this still applies to us. What kinds of idols are we called to forsake, to turn from? You see the story here, they go off, you see, on an iconoclastic rage throughout the land. You probably noticed that. It's all joyful and it's all happy, they're celebrating and so forth, and they go off, it says to us, in chapter 31. They celebrate the Passover They spent seven extra days there. They were so full of joy. Nothing like this ever happened in the days of King Solomon, verse 26 said in chapter 30. And then chapter 31, verse 1 tells us that they go around the land and they're breaking and destroying in pieces, pillars and cutting down ashram, breaking down high places and altars and so forth. Until they destroyed them all. Well, that was then, though. They they had idols back then, right? They had all kinds of idols and they had to destroy them. We don't have any idols, do we? We have no idols here, do we? Are there idols today? Are there idols that we can't even see? All of us are products of our culture, unfortunately. That's, that's just how it is. We are lured and we are called to serve material goods, right? Materialism. We all do it. We are called daily in all kinds of ways, to serve the God of hedonism, to serve ourselves, our own pleasures, our own desires. We're called every single day, even as Christians, to live lives of practical atheism by saying with our lips one thing, but living it a different way. To imagine that God doesn't hear us or see us. That's practical atheism. We're called to forsake idols forsake anything any place anyone anything that we can not only put in the place of god but next to god you know i can serve god in money it's okay i can serve jesus uh, jesus and mammon didn't jesus say that somewhere it's okay to serve god and money no you can't serve god and money we're called to forsake self we're called to destroy idols. And here in the story, it's one man who's doing this. Revival happens not just in a, time of, in a place of spiritual darkness, but in a time and in a place when just even one person. Here it's Hezekiah. Other stories like John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she is the one who then goes to her town and says, we found the Messiah. It only takes one man one woman. For God to use that one to revive the whole. Who's that man? Who's that woman? Who's that child amongst us today? And the why of revival? Very simply. If God is the who of revival, he's the one who gives it. If he really is the what of revival, because it's his blessing upon his own means if he's the one who shows up when and where there is spiritual decline and darkness, the why of revival, the answer to that question should be very simple as well. 
Why did this story happen? Why did God revive Judah in the days of King Hezekiah? Do you know why? For his own glory. The why revival is the glory of God, the pleasure of God. It's not for us because we think of revival as a time of feeling really good. As opposed to, no, it's for the pleasure and the glory of God. If you keep reading the story of the Chronicles, you'll, you'll see that uh, in the days of Hezekiah, as they draw to an end, uh, the very next story is about Sennacherib invading Judah. They don't last forever. God doesn't bless in this particular way forever, all the time. He does for a season for his own purpose. And there are times, other times, as we say again, he can create, he can destroy. There are other times where God, for his own glory, decides to discipline his children, to allow them to be invaded, to allow them to be taken captive, so that eventually they would come to their wits, and again, one person would stand up, serve the Lord. And God revive, and the whole process starts all over again. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why. And then finally we come to the how. Just a couple of takeaways from these sto- this story. If you'd read the whole three chapters on your own again and, and think about these things and uh, mark it up, I would hope that you would see these points. Very simple. I've already mentioned them before, but the how of revival. And again, this is not a manual. These aren't steps. Uh, I might as well just jumble them up in, in any given order. It doesn't really matter the order I tell you these things because these are not steps, tried and true steps, uh, that if we would just package this and send it out there, you know, we could probably make a ton of money and, and, and uh, go buy you know, 100 acres of land and, and build a ginormous revival co- uh, uh, campus. You know? This is not, it's not how it works. But we see certain things in the scripture, in this passage, about the how of revival. How does it happen? First, right from the get-go, it only takes one whose heart is stirred. It only takes one whose heart is stirred. There's something about Hezekiah, something going on in his heart, in his mind, something that's troubling him about the darkness and decline of his age, something about the word that he's been meditating upon and preparing to be a king. Deuteronomy 17 says the king was to write his own copy of the law and to meditate upon it every single day and night. And no doubt as the king's son, he was preparing himself to do just that. It only takes one whose heart is stirred. That's the first thing about the how of revival. And we see this throughout the scriptures. It only takes one. We have Hezekiah. Uh, there's Josiah, another great king who, uh, under whom the Lord revived. Uh, there's a Samaritan woman. We mentioned her before, John 4, and others. It only takes one. <coughs> Secondly, the how of, of, of revival is due to a diligent getting back to the ordinary means that God has already given. A diligent getting back to the ordinary means that God has already given. And we see that here. They are are consulting and living according to the word. 
They are doing the sacraments, the, 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 the sacrifices of the Old Testament. They are praying together. And we read about these things, for example, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I mentioned before that Acts 2.42 is a summary verse of the ancient church's life together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word, to the breaking of the bread, that's the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, to the fellowship and to the prayers. Those basic building blocks of what it means to be a church and a Christian in the church. Getting back, diligently getting back to the ordinary means that God has given. In other words, the church is revived most when it is most simple. Preach the word. Baptize sinners, repentant sinners, celebrate the Lord's Supper, and pray. It's that easy. It's that simple. And we trust that God is going to use all that. Third, We see here as well another ingredient that's related to prayer that revival happens when there's earnest and urgent repentance. Earnest and urgent repentance. Again, in chapter 30, uh, verse 6 through 9, there's this letter sent throughout the whole of the land from north to south. And then it says to the Israelites, uh, beginning there at verse 6, the middle of it, O people of Israel, return to the Lord. And there's this constant theme that If you return to the Lord, he will return to you. Now, some take that in in a sort of mechanistic kind of way or mechanical kind of way or formulaic kind of way or a way that makes it uh, turn this into a law or into a guilt. No, this is addressing the covenant people of God. To put it in our terms, these people have already been baptized. They've been circumcised, right? These are, these are baptized people. They belong to the church. They do all the things. They have all the things that makes a person a believer, a part of the covenant people. And so the Lord says, turn to me and I'll turn back to you. You're already my people, but if you turn to me with diligent and earnest repentance, I will return to you in a way that will bless you. Remove this scourge from you bless you in such abundance that you're bringing all these offerings and you don't, they don't even have enough space for them all. So revival happens, the how of, of it is one person being stirred, a diligent getting back to the ordinary means that God has already given. There's an earnest and urgent repentance uh, that is involved throughout the process. And finally, and really most importantly, it's waiting on the Lord. It's waiting on God. As one person is stirred, like Hezekiah here, uh, and, and who's seeking to stir up the hearts of others, as one man is seeking to get people back to this, uh, these ways of God diligently, as one man is seeking to repent and call others to turn from self and idolatry and turn to, the, to God into repentance, all you can do is wait. Why? Why do we need to wait on God? What's the first point I mentioned this morning? The who revival is what? Is who again? God. If one of us stands up right now and says, I stand up for Jesus and I want the Lord to revive us and we're going to read the Bible, the whole Bible, tomorrow. Everyone show up tomorrow. We're going to read the whole Bible. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to pray for 24 straight hours and we're all going to earnestly and urgently confess our sins. Are you guaranteed 
a, quote, revival tomorrow. Wait on the Lord. That'd be great if we all gathered together and read the whole Bible and we prayed and all that stuff. It'd be great. But ultimately, we've got to wait on God because it's God's work. It's God's work. Do Reformed churches believe in revival? Yes. We think the Reformation is a revival. And throughout our history, throughout our tradition, there have been revivals, not just ours, but throughout the whole Christian church, revivals, renewals, restorations, reformations. But ultimately, it's up to God. He's the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and he's even the how. Wait on the Lord. And so this morning, we come to the Lord. We come to hear his word. I hope that encourages you to know that God's in control, that God is doing his, uh, doing his work in the world. Uh, I pray and trust that he's doing that work amongst us and in us, but I hope that this also stirs us up to seek him more, to want more of God, to want to sing more, to hear the word more, to pray more, to receive more uh, of him, to fellowship more. I pray that these things encourage us to be stirred up to seek the Lord and to seek his face forevermore. Uh, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. I printed out a little prayer of response for us to pray this morning uh, on the order of service. If you turn there before we come to uh, the Lord's, or we come to our next song, let's pray this beautiful prayer uh, as a as a summary of what we've heard this morning. Trusting that God is going to work amongst us uh, when and how uh, He desires, and so let's pray and wait upon the Lord, saying, "Turn us, O good Lord, and so shall we be turned. Be favorable, O Lord." Be favorable to your people who turn to you in weeping, fasting, and praying. For you are a merciful God, full of compassion, long-suffering, and of great pity. You spare when we deserve punishment, and in your wrath think upon mercy. Spare your people, good Lord, spare them, and let not your heritage be brought to confusion. Hear us, O Lord, for your mercy is great, and after the multitude of your mercies, look upon us the merits and mediation of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's turn together.